Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Maine's Secretary of State says she's duty-bound, making Maine the second state to bar former President Trump from the presidential primary. We have reactions to the unilateral action. And the attempt to keep Trump off the Colorado ballot likely won't be successful, at least not for the primaries. We ask an analyst for the latest details on the situation. Israel has confirmed a woman thought to be a hostage in Gaza has been killed. It follows the recent announcement of the death of another hostage, the woman's husband. Russia unleashes its largest missile attack on Ukraine since the start of the war. What are Ukrainian authorities reporting in the aftermath of the massive assault? With 2023 almost over, we look back at some of the year's top stories in the final quarter of our yearly review. If you're among those who feel the year 2023 was a bit rough, see what a little fire, paper, and magic can do to get you on your way to a happy 2024. As Shenyun Performing Arts begins its performances in the U.S. and worldwide, we give you a special look into the lives of two principal Shenyun dancers. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Friday. Today is December 29th. Yes, that weekend's right around the corner here. You know, Evelyn, any decision to keep Trump off the ballot is very serious, but this one in Maine is a little different than in Colorado. You mean because Trump actually won an elector in 2020? Right, exactly. Yeah, so if this does carry over to the general election, it could have a larger impact because Maine uses that congressional district method to win electors. Right, and the Maine Secretary of State, Shanna Bellows, has removed former President Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. The Democrat issued the decision yesterday, making Maine the second state to disqualify Trump from next year's presidential primary. Bellows' decision to disqualify the GOP frontrunner is based on an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's vague and rarely used insurrection clause. The state's top election official paused her decision pending a potential appeal in state court. Trump's campaign says it will quickly file an objection calling the decision atrocious. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has some reactions to the unilateral action in Maine. Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows stated she did not reach the conclusion lightly to bar Trump from the state's primary in her 34-page ruling Thursday. The U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government, and that Maine election law and the Constitution required, indeed obligated me to act. Bellows presided over an administrative hearing earlier this month about Trump's eligibility for office. A group of former state lawmakers filed the challenge against Trump. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson weighed in on X, calling Bellows' decision reckless and partisan. He says he's confident the Supreme Court will reverse it. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy had one request for Americans after Bellows' announcement, posting on X, open your eyes. It's unconstitutional, it's anti-American, it's wrong. Ramaswamy told Fox News he'll withdraw from any GOP primary ballot where competitors are forcibly removed through unconstitutional maneuvers. He's calling for other GOP candidates to follow suit. We then take Maine out of the GOP primary process. That's the logical way to handle this. Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis told Fox Maine's ruling is, in his words, opening Pandora's box. DeSantis says it defies every notion of constitutional due process abided by for over 200 years. 
Maine's procedure for deciding ballot eligibility is different than Michigan's and Colorado's. Eligibility is first considered by the Secretary of State before any court. Bellows cited the Colorado ruling in her decision and its appeal. She wrote a possible reversal by the U.S. Supreme Court did not relieve her of her responsibility to act. She acknowledged that the nation's highest court is likely to eventually weigh in and told CNN she'll follow its ruling. Trump's attorneys Wednesday asked Bellows to recuse herself from the issue for public statements after January 6 that, quote, exhibit personal bias in this matter. The letter cited several past posts on Twitter, now X. They say that show she already made the conclusion on alleged insurrection then, before the submission of any evidence or argument in the current matter. Trump's team has vowed to appeal Bellows' decision to Maine's Superior Court. Maine's GOP primary is March 5th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Colorado Secretary of State says Trump will stay on the state's primary ballot unless the U.S. Supreme Court either declines the case or affirms the Colorado ruling. Here for some insight into the challenges Trump is facing in Colorado and Maine, we speak to Jeff Kruger, a political analyst and TV radio host. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Yeah, so Trump's campaign describes Maine's Secretary of State Bellows, who is a Democrat, as a hyperpartisan leftist who is interfering in the presidential election. In your view, what is driving her decision to remove Trump from the ballot, a carefully weighed decision or a political attack? <laughs> uh, no, I, I think the decision was made right after January 6th. As they pointed out, I mean, she's been partisan and she had her mind made up three years ago. Uh, Kevin, this is absolutely atrocious. Uh, we've got Colorado and Maine taking the decision away from the people of those states and trying to bar unilaterally a presidential candidate, a former president who has not been charged with insurrection, he's not been convicted of insurrection. The Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to Confederates and those engaged in rebellion. President Trump, uh, at the speech on January 6th, called for people to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. He went on Twitter later and told people to leave in peace. The man is being railroaded, uh, Kevin. And the reason, I believe, is they are deathly afraid of him being back in the White House as president. They hate him and they hate even more his Make America Great Again agenda. So Maine's Republican Party has cast Bellows as the most progressive Senate candidate in America. What's the likelihood that her political ideology is a factor in this decision? 100 uh, percent. And I think it's the same thing in, in Colorado with the with the four leftist uh, Supreme Court justices there. Even three of the Democrats there did not go along with it. So it was a split four to three decision. But it's a, a blue state, Colorado, a blue state, Maine. But as you pointed out, Donald Trump won an elector there in 2016 and 2020 in the rural congressional district as they split. So that's taking away an electoral vote from him. But again, it's taking away the, the choice of the people. And I commend Vivek Ramaswamy for dropping out of any ballots where this kind of decision is made. And I call on the other presidential candidates to follow his lead and to do that as well. This can't stand. I mean, Kevin, this is atrocious. And once again, our voice is being uh, targeted here. It's our decision who should be elected president, not a Democrat court, not a Democrat uh, secretary of state. So, Jeff, we can imagine what Trump supporters are going to think about this decision here in Maine. But the moves by Maine's Secretary of State and Colorado Supreme Court, even though he's staying on the ballot in Colorado for the time being, to remove him from that ballot, to affect voters who are not strongly for or strongly against Trump, but are in the middle. 
Well, I mean, I, I think those voters should, should come to a quick conclusion that uh, Democrats fear Donald Trump. And, you know, the, the narrative has been, oh, we want Trump to be the, the nominee. We're, we, we would love to, to face Trump. Well, everything they have done since the day he condemned the escalator eight years ago is that they're, they're afraid of his agenda and afraid of him as a candidate. So this just is another piece of evidence. I mean, there's so much evidence that they're targeting him and preventing him from being available for voters. And this is, again, uh, an, an outrageous step that they've taken. I think it should convince people in the middle that he's someone that we really need because it's all partisan Democrats that are doing this. So. I'm calling on the Supreme Court, Kevin, this has got to be uh, handled by the Supreme Court as soon as possible to nip this in the bud. Otherwise, we're going to see Democrat states all over the country uh, follow their lead. Right. And it has definitely been said that the Supreme Court will rule on this, making the, the law of the land for the nation. Jeff Kruger, a political analyst and TV radio host, thank you so much. Thank you. The Department of Justice is threatening to sue Texas Governor Greg Abbott again, this time over a new Texas law that grants local law enforcement the authority to arrest illegal immigrants. The DOJ says the law violates the U.S. Constitution. It's warning Abbott to back down from enforcing it. The measure, known as Senate Bill 4, is set to take effect in March. Abbott reacted by accusing the Biden administration of, quote, destroying America. Abbott on X said not only does the administration fail to enforce current U.S. immigration laws, it now wants to stop Texas from enforcing laws against illegal immigration. And from politics to the nature, a powerful offshore storm is driving towering waves into the California coastline. The wild weather is triggering flooding and warnings of dangerous swells. CCTV captured the moment a rogue wave hit the beach in the city of Ventura, wiping out several bystanders and vehicles. At least eight people were transported to local hospitals due to this incident. A non-paying customer crashed the gates of his California restaurant. Massive waves drew surfers and spectators to the famed Mavericks Beach Surf Spot on Thursday. 30 to 40 foot waves breaking at the legendary site were reported. High water and dangerous rip currents will churn along some of California's beaches through the weekend. Much of the West Coast is under coastal flood and high surf alerts. Coming up, Israel has confirmed a woman who was thought to be a hostage in Gaza has been killed. Find out the details. And the Israeli military unveiling details about a tragic, friendly fire incident that killed three Israeli hostages. That's as the IDF issues a stern warning to Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon. Jason Perry reports after this break. Good to have you back. Now we have some news out of Israel where an American-Canadian-Israeli woman thought to be held hostage in Gaza was pronounced dead yesterday. Judith Weinstein and her husband Gad Hagari were taken to an early morning walk on October 7th near Kibbutz Niroz, and that's when Hamas terrorists burst across the border into Israel. 
The two were thought to be among the hostages still held in captivity in Gaza, but the kibbutz announced last week that Haggai was killed on October 7th and his body was taken to Gaza. News emerged yesterday that Weinstein was also killed on October 7th and her body is also being held in Gaza. It was not immediately clear how Israeli authorities determined their deaths. According to the kibbutz, the couple are survived by two sons, two daughters, and seven grandchildren. What exactly happened when the Israel Defense Forces accidentally killed three Israeli hostages? Israel now shares their findings. It also comes as the IDF issues a strong warning to Hezbollah, a terrorist group in Lebanon. And today's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Hundreds of Israeli youth gathered in Jerusalem on Thursday, urging for the release of the hostages held by Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip. We're here because we have people our age in Gaza. We want them to come back to their homes, and that's why we come here. We want them to, to come back. And time is ticking for the more than 100 hostages still being held captive in the Gaza Strip. Last week, we reported that a 73-year-old American-Israeli hostage had been killed and his wife was still in captivity. Now, her community in Israel says that she was actually killed on October 7th when Hamas terrorists murdered over 1,200 innocent people in Israel. Meanwhile, this former hostage, Chin Alma Goldstein, who did make it out alive, shared her experience on that tragic day. She said Hamas terrorists burst into her family's home and killed her husband and her oldest daughter on October 7th. Then Hamas took her and her other three children as hostages. They were held captive for 51 days before they were released. She explained what it was like. Some hostages were beaten, handcuffed for some hours. Not just men, women were beaten too. And we heard of sexual abuse some firsthand, and some were girls we met who witnessed it or had heard about it. She and her other three children returned to Israel in this military helicopter. Meanwhile, other families were crushed earlier this month after Israeli forces mistakenly shot and killed three Israeli hostages in the Gaza Strip. On Thursday, the IDF released the findings of their investigation. The IDF spokesperson explained that one soldier initially fired at the three Israeli hostages, killing two of them, and the other ran away. Then, two other IDF soldiers who did not hear the order to hold their fire shot and killed the third hostage. After entire days of encountering explosives, watching your friends die, having RPGs fired at you, encountering terrorists wearing civilian clothes without a weapon, pulling you towards all kinds of explosives in the streets, in that situation, a soldier stood at a window with limited visibility. He made a mistake. He fired mistakenly. Meanwhile, Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu said they are having discussions about getting the hostages released, but he did not give any details. As the IDF continues to push forward in the Gaza Strip to defeat Hamas and bring the hostages home, things are heating up across Israel's northern border. Recently, the IDF appears to be hardening their stance against Hezbollah terrorists in Lebanon saying that if the terrorist group does not stop firing on Israeli communities, Hezbollah could cause a full-scale war with Lebanon and that Israel could turn Beirut into another Gaza Strip.
However, Hezbollah on Thursday appeared unfazed by Israel's recent remarks, saying they are not intimidated by threats or warnings, and they are ready to escalate if necessary. Jason Perry, NTD News. Shelling along the Lebanon-Israel border continued throughout the day yesterday. This is Lebanese officials spent the day in meetings with French and British counterparts about the growing conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. The Iran-backed terrorist group claimed it carried out simultaneous attacks yesterday, targeting multiple locations across northern Israel. Here's an IDF spokesman on Israel's plans to take further action against the terrorist group. They literally could create an entire terror umbrella over the state of Israel. They've been backed and trained by Iran for decades, and they are, a, they are a serious terror army. When push comes to shove, if the diplomatic community cannot take care of this, we will use whatever weapons and means at our disposal to take them out. Following up on our coverage of the claims about Hamas controlling UN relief operations in the Gaza Strip, we've just heard back from UNRWA. Julia Tuma, the director of communications for UNRWA, says the agency has strict clearance processes for all of its staff in Gaza, adding that UNRWA shares a list of its staff with the government of Israel every year. She also says UNRWA has never received any response or objection from Israel about the content of the list. And changing topics, Russia unleashed over 100 missiles and dozens of drones against Ukrainian targets, officials said today. The attacks killed at least 18 civilians. A Ukrainian Air Force official called it the biggest aerial barrage of the nearly two-year war. The Ukrainian Air Force intercepted almost 90 missiles and nearly 30 drones overnight, according to Ukraine's military chief. During the nearly 18-hour attack, dozens were injured and more were buried under rubble. Exact numbers are still unknown. Ukrainian officials say a maternity hospital, apartment buildings and schools were among the buildings damaged. Authorities said the attack hit six cities, including the capital Kiev and other areas across Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia used every type of weapon in its arsenal. Fighting along the front line is largely bogged down by winter weather. Ukraine's summer counteroffensive didn't make much headway along the roughly 600-mile battle line. Coming up, we take a look at the price of gas and what you could be paying at the pump next year. And Google has agreed to settle a consumer privacy lawsuit after being accused of tracking millions of users. We get the details from the host of Entity Business in a moment. Welcome back. And here with us now, as you can see, is NTD business host Don Ma. Welcome, Don, to talk about the trends in gas prices. Gas prices will notably fall in 2024, according to gas information website GasBuddy.com. So, Don, what are the forecasts looking like for next year? Well, GasBuddy actually uh, made a forecast for 2023 as well, and it was actually uh, pretty accurate. So I think it's uh, worth a look at their forecasts for next year. So they're saying somewhere around $3.38 for a gallon of gasoline on average in 2024. And this would represent a significant uh, drop from the average of this year, which was $3.51 a gallon. So, you know, if you do a little bit of calculation, what this would amount to for Americans in terms of savings would be over $30 billion potentially saved on gasoline next year if the predictions are true. So, I mean, if it is true, this would be welcome news for consumers because mm -hmm. 
you know, not only does uh, gasoline uh, represent a lot of the spending on, on a day-to-day -day basis, but everything we see in a store uh, at some point were, was transported there using uh, a type of vehicle that runs on gasoline. So, you know, this could actually lower inflation a little bit as well, potentially. Uh, so Gas Buddy predicts that the national average is going to top out at $3.63. Uh, somewhere in May. And by December 2024, we could actually see $2.99 for a gallon of gas. Um, so the reason why Gas Buddy is pretty optimistic here is because the U.S. actually uh, produced a record amount of uh, uh, oil, oil per day in, in the fourth quarter of this year, uh, uh, around $13 billion uh, 13 million barrels per day uh, in, in the fourth quarter. So, I mean, on top of everything that uh, Gas Buddy has predicted, this number could actually provide another layer of protection, another layer of cushion for consumers against uh, spiking gas prices. Sounds good. Yeah, and you just mentioned it. Some people even said it was eerily accurate. So what is your, how confident are you that this is going to continue like that? How are the predictions going to be for next year? Yeah, great question. But you know, like any forecast, uh, it could be wrong. So the, the price could be a little bit higher, could be a little bit lower. Uh, so if we do see an economic downturn uh, in 2024, that could lower gas prices uh, than what GasBuddy has predicted. Um, you know, on the other hand, if we do see an ex escalation in the conflict in the Middle East, that could uh, threaten energy supplies, and in turn, that would spike up oil prices. Uh, you know, back up to you know potentially even hundred dollars a barrel, and of course, that would give upwards pressure to gasoline prices. Um, so. Another concern here would be, according to GasBuddy, is that America's limited refinery, uh, refinery capacity, uh, because refineries do actually play a critical role in transforming a crude oil into gasoline and other products as well. So uh, we've seen this year with extreme weather events, uh, including heat waves, uh, at times have knocked down these uh, refineries, uh, putting them offline and also putting a bottleneck on the supply of uh, gasoline, uh, especially on the West Coast. I, I mean, it only takes really one refinery to go down to uh, put, put a surge in gas prices. Um, and of course, we can't uh, forget about hurricanes, right? That could also disrupt uh, refineries. And, you know, OPEC Plus as well is another factor. They're, they haven't shied away uh, from cutting supply and the White House's re relationship with uh, OPEC countries uh, have been iffy, uh, to say the least. So, you know, a lot of wild cards that could uh, put a, a disruption on the predictions by Gas Buddy. Well, it is good news that gas prices are coming down. We got to get from point A to point B. And guess what? He says that diesel prices will fall too. So hopefully that can give a little relief on food prices. Now, what's the update with the Google consumer privacy lawsuit? Yeah, yeah, great question there. Uh, Google agreed to uh, settle the consumer privacy lawsuit for at least $5 billion. A California judge put the scheduled February trial on hold yesterday after lawyers for Google and consumers said they reached a preliminary settlement. The lawsuit claimed Google's secretly tracked uh, the use of Internet of millions who, th who thought they were browsing privately. Plaintiffs allege that Google's analytics, cookies and apps let the company track their activity even when they set Google's Chrome browser to incognito mode and other browsers to private browsing mode. Google's bid to dismiss the case was denied earlier this year.
Well, thank you so much for those updates. And I want to wish you a happy new year now because we're going to have you back only in the new year, right? So yeah, you as well. See you next year, Don. See you thank next you. year, 2024. <laughs> thank you. And from the start of the Israel-Hamas war to the Colorado Supreme Court decision to bar Trump, we look back at 2023's last quarter in the final part of our yearly review. Want to wash away the tough times of 2023? Writing a letter and burning it is the way to do it at this New York City event. Good to have you back with 2023 almost over. We take a look at some of the major events that happened near the end of the year. From the start of the Israel-Hamas war to the Colorado ruling blocking former President Trump from the presidential primary, NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the last segment of our multi-part series. Hamas launches a terrorist attack on Israel October 7th, firing thousands of rockets from Gaza and breaching the border to murder civilians in towns. The terrorists killed around 260 people at an Israeli music festival that morning and kidnapped others back to Gaza to parade through the streets. Israel says Hamas terrorists killed roughly 1,200 people and took over 240 hostages. The Israeli government officially declared war on Hamas October 8th and began targeting terrorist commanders and infrastructure with airstrikes in response. Evacuations were issued along Israel's northern border with Lebanon as clashes with Iran-backed terrorist group Hezbollah increased. An explosion at a hospital in Gaza City triggers outrage mid-October after widespread reports of an Israeli airstrike. The U.S. and Israel after an investigation determined it was caused by a misfired rocket by the terrorist group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. Hamas releases the first hostages October 20th to American citizens. Aid trucks begin entering Gaza through the Rafah border crossing from Egypt. And the United Nations Secretary General begins accusing Israel of violating international humanitarian law in the Gaza Strip. At the end of October, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announces ground operations in Gaza have begun, vowing to destroy the enemy above and below ground. Now, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is ousted. Representative Mike Johnson wins the gavel as the fourth GOP nominee. Netanyahu November 7th states Israel's military had encircled Gaza City and is operating inside. MRI center. The military begins operating near Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa, and finds weapons and terrorist infrastructure during a raid. A closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. A live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest. November 24th, Qatar's foreign ministry announces Israel and Hamas have agreed to a four-day pause, subject to extension, to facilitate the release of hostages. The pause lasts seven days. Hamas releases around 100 hostages in exchange for roughly 210 Palestinian prisoners held on terrorism-related charges. The pause ends when Hamas violates terms of the deal by firing rockets at Israel and failing to release at least 10 hostages a day. At the APEC summit in San Francisco, President Biden doubles down on his view that Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping is effectively a dictator. And in Argentina, libertarian Javier Malay is elected president, and 40 construction workers are rescued from a collapsed tunnel in India's Himalayas after being trapped for 17 days. Israel resumes combat operations against Hamas targets in Gaza December 1st. 
The U.S. vetoes a proposed United Nations Security Council demand for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, saying it would only benefit Hamas. Israeli troops accidentally shoot and kill three hostages, a tragedy that the IDF says violates its own rules of engagement as they were holding a white flag. The incident is under investigation. The IDF also uncovers a massive Hamas tunnel big enough to drive cars through a quarter mile from the Erez crossing at the Israeli border. Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry claims over 20,000 civilians have been killed. The numbers are unverified and do not differentiate combatants. Back in the U.S., the Colorado Supreme Court rules former President Trump ineligible to appear on the state's primary ballot. Four of seven justices deemed that Trump had participated in an insurrection and should be disqualified under a rarely used clause of the 14th Amendment in the U.S. Constitution. The Colorado court placed the ruling on hold until January 4th, pending Trump's appeal. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Well, luckily, they were able to get at least a ceasefire at some point to get some of those hostages out. And even one said that she went through a holocaust in that time. Right. Yeah, I can't imagine the shock, you know, what it feels like to wake up to those newspaper headlines that Israel's at war, almost like a flashback to 1973. And it seems like, you know, the Israeli military says that there are still months to come. So, of course, there will be a lot more that will carry on into the new year. But uh, moving on, there is also a lot that is out of sight, out of mind. People from all over the world lined up in New York City's Times Square yesterday to burn away their bad memories of 2023. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the annual tradition called Good Riddance Day. Oh my gosh! This is the 17th annual Good Riddance Day, and this year's participants were encouraged to write down the year's unpleasant memories on a flash paper. An on-site magician would then burn them into thin air. T.J. Witham of the Times Square Alliance says the event is a chance to reflect on times past. Maybe think of some of the negative things that happened, some of the things you'd like to get rid of, some of the things you'd like to cleanse yourself of. He says the tradition helps people welcome 2024 with hope. Tamara came to burn away the struggles of her sister. Because my sister, during her seventh month of pregnancy, was diagnosed with cancer. So it was a really bad year, but she's doing a lot better, but we're ready to say goodbye to that. Tamara says her sister's doing much better, but they're ready to send her troubles packing for good. Kiara and Samantha both want to do away with people-pleasing, anxiety, and self-doubt. I think just starting afresh and turning a new page for the both of us in 2024 is exactly why we're here today. New Yorker Barbara Litt wants the horrors of warfare to hit the road. I wish to end the end of the war, all wars, both, you know, it's just horrible what's going on. Those who want to try a similar ritual to start 2024 outright still have a couple of days before the new year is rung in. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Great tradition. That's one way to stay positive, I suppose. Right? Yeah. All right. Uh, we're heading into break. Stay tuned. Shen Yun Performing Arts has begun their performances in the U.S. and around the world. We give you a special look into the lives of two principal Shen Yun dancers. So stay tuned for that. And we 
have all seen the posters and videos, Shenyun Performing Arts is coming to a city near you. A troupe that is known to be the best worldwide for traditional Chinese dance. But what we see on stage is a result of years of hard work. So what's it really like behind the curtain? And what is life like as a Shenyun dancer? We have the pleasure to welcome Marilyn Yang and William Lee with us today to talk about this. And what many don't actually know is that they're siblings. So welcome to both of you. So what is it like? What was your childhood essentially like? Because that involves a lot of hard training and work and discipline at such a young age. Yeah, I mean, once you start dancing, it's like it ha you flip your world upside down. You're training for hours every single day. So you have a lot of basic dance training, but on top of that, also rehearsals. So every year we're putting on a completely new performance. That means we're on the road for six months and also at the base in New York for six months. And it's just a lot of training, very physical, but also a lot of mental. It's very mental because, um, I mean, learning movements is tiring, it's hard, and you have to use your brain just as much as your body. How did you even get, or how did either of you get to start to be dancers in Shenyun? How did this come about? It will start with me first, and my mom is a singer, and my dad actually directs movies and produces movies. So, wow. pretty involved in the arts, and my mom wanted me to try dancing when I was a young age. It, it seems like something that's a little bit odd for a young boy to try, but once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the mm -hmm. history that comes along with learning traditional classical Chinese dance, and also just it's actually very physical. So, that was actually right. quite fun. That's nice, so that it was fun on top of all this hard work. And so, and then you decided to, yeah. let's say, follow in his footsteps, right? He, Even though he told, did he tell you about how, how much hard work that would be? Uh, he likes to say that I followed in his footsteps. Oh, okay. But for me, I think it was more like, I mean, when I watched the show, naturally, I was really awestruck with the female dancers. So it was definitely more of like that I was going for. Like I wanted to pursue that, that brilliant on stage like just it's just a really nice experience even when I was a small kid it was like one of my deepest memories I just kind of went blind into it and of course it was like it was like a shocking like change in lifestyle and everything but it's definitely I think he supported me coming and joining Shenyun because of he knew how much it benefited his life and it really made I think a change for all of us so when you went into it, how did you feel like, you know, was there like a, when you found out what it actually involves, how was that like for you? I think at first it was more like, oh, the show's so pretty and you just want to be on stage and just perform. But I think there's a lot that came into it that it's like, it changed me as a character and definitely a lot of, to be able to train and try to become professional at anything and dance especially, you have to have a lot of self-discipline and it's a lot more than just the physical aspect, like you said. Is mm. I think it's a really humbling experience. Humbling experience. So how was it for you? Was it difficult? I imagine as a 13-year-old as boy, you also need to build up that discipline. Was that something difficult to do? Uh, definitely very difficult, but it's something you almost you need to find what drives you to be a dancer. Like, just going into it because you like it, that's how you start. But as you dance, you know, or doing anything in life, you have to find, when things get tough, what really drives you. And for me, even though I was young at the time, the mission of Shin Yun is actually something that is really amazing. To revive a culture that was almost destroyed. 
to revive 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture. And I think when you think about it, even when things get hard, that is actually something that's very inspirational for a young person. And mm. it really drove me through some of the tougher times. That is incredible that you understand this. How long have you been dancing now and what keeps you going now? Um, I started dancing when I was 10 years old. I would say that um, there's so many aspects to it. I definitely agree that it's, it's something so, it's hard to wrap your mind around at, first, at such a young age that I'm going to be reviving traditional Chinese culture. Um, but as I got more into it, I realized that it's just something really, it's something that's so much bigger than myself. And it was a really special feeling to know that I'm part of something bigger and I'm part of a mm. team. What would you say is the hardest part and what's your favorite part of being a dancer? Who wants to go first? <laughs> I would say the hardest part is just um, trying to become like really skilled at something, it requires a lot of practice. And there's always gonna be times when you don't wanna, you don't wanna get up in the morning to continue like the same schedule. It's just a lot of, it requires a lot of self-discipline. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something very challenging because we all have, always have those lazy days. And oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you wanna, you wanna always be better than the you you were yesterday. Mm -hmm. So if you wanna keep on, keep on climbing up that hill really, it's sometimes you just feel like you stay in the same place for a while and you don't really see much improvement. So it takes a lot of, I think, just the mental um, push to like sh strive to become better and know that there is really, there's no limit to the, the like no limit to how good you can get. Mm. So it's always, you gotta keep pushing yourself and I think that's something that's really challenging. Mm be better than the you yesterday, that's yes. awesome. What about you? Something really hard is just the training can get very repetitive. It's almost like you can think about like going to the gym and working out, right? You have to do the same uh, motion every time, the same amount of reps, and you have to keep building on top of that. And mm -hmm. then maybe you recover a day, and the next day you wanna go back, you're still kinda sore, but you still have to go if you wanna improve. So dancing is the same thing. It, the training is quite repetitive, but what we present on stage every year is still different. So there's a, there's a both sides of that coin where it's repetitive training, but new performance for us every year. So what is your favorite part? Would that be your favorite part to perform on stage? You know what's really good about being at Shenyun is that we perform all over the world. And mm. I started young, but I traveled to so many different countries, a hundred, like over a hundred different cities in the world performing and uh, presenting classical Chinese dance on stage. It's something that I'm quite proud of, but it's just a really good experience for a young person. That sounds awesome you had mentioned before, which is the mission of Shenyun. So tell me a little bit more about what the mission exactly is and why it resonated with you. So the mission of uh, Shenyun is to revive authentic traditional Chinese culture. And why that's important is because the CCP that's in China today, the communist regime tried to systematically destroy traditional Chinese culture when they took over China. So there was a cultural revolution and they actually mm -hmm. systematically tried to destroy tr Chinese culture. They said that um, everything that is old is bad, like faith and tradition, all of these things that Chinese people have resonated with and is really the backbone of Chinese civilization for over 5,000 years, they try to get rid of that. Because when you are spiritual, you, you believe in, you know, um, you have your own beliefs. But when the CCP came in, right, you don't, they don't want people to have their own faith mm. and be individuals. They want you to just follow what the CCP says. So 
really, they actually try to, you know, they had all these different movements trying to destroy culture, and all of a sudden, Shen Yun comes in, and we're trying to revive this tradition, revive this culture, which is the backbone of Chinese civilization. And, you know, they're actually quite scared of that. So right. they've interfered with a lot of our performances all over the world. They interfered? How so? So, for example, uh, when we try to perform in some theaters, for example, in South Korea, in Dominican Republic, and even in America, they would send letters to the theaters. theater managers, mm -hmm. and they would try to convince them not to host Shen Yun. Yeah, I think that's good to bring up because that's a really dark part of history that I think people should be aware of. So why is it so valuable, this traditional Chinese culture that you want to share it with the world? I think that traditional Chinese culture, it's so rich with just so many virtues and just so many characteristics on how to be a better person. And that's really embedded in the ancient Chinese civilization. Um, really, the culture was is divinely inspired and everything was very spiritually tied. So the history of ancient China was really all about how to become a better person, how to become, um, just be make society better, mm -hmm. I think. And if we were to bring back those values today, that would definitely benefit just our society nowadays too. For us, when we do a lot of these ancient Chinese stories, these characters, we're not necessarily just acting. It's not just an act that we put up, but we really live in these virtues and we're always trying to cultivate these virtues in ourselves so that we embody them truly. So when we portray them on stage, it's really a realistic um, portrayal and it's not something that we're just trying to put on and put on an act for. It's something I think because it's so true to ourselves, the audience mm -hmm. can really feel the how rich and just how accurate. It feels more genuine yeah. if you resonate with that character's emotions or what he's portraying. So for example, uh, Mifurin, she had to sacrifice for her baby. If you don't, if you're quite a selfish person, you might not resonate with those feelings or those virtues. And then what you portray on stage is not really going to connect with your character and it might not connect with your audience. So that's why if you want to portray a character well, you really need to resonate with the values that they represent. Right. So what exactly does that mean? With How does that manifest in your life? When you say it represents, you live by those values, what kind of changes do you make to your life to achieve that? I think it's a lot of the very small things. For example, Monkey King, he went from arrogant to humble. And that means that in your daily life, um, your actions and what you do should um, reflect humility, right? I can't go around being like, I'm the best. I can do all this. No, but you should know that there's always someone better than you. And actually, in Chinese, like, Chinese culture is believed to be divinely inspired. And for me, a lot of the skills and what I've learned in dance, I think, is also given to me from the divine. It's not just my own hard work, but that's like, um, something that we believe Chinese people believe is from the gods. And even my, my skills and abilities, I think, are also given to me from the divine as well. There, there is a saying, <laughs> So before learning a skill, first learn to be a good person. And oh. that, I think, for a lot of dancers, I think it's very important. Because if you're a good person, you can better represent um, these values on stage. It's like, um, for example, if I'm telling you, uh, I like watermelon. Something very simple, right? We can all, but if I really hated watermelon, I dislike it, but I told you I like watermelon, you would feel something's a little bit off. But if I really like watermelon, and I tell, I'm telling you I love watermelon, you got to believe me, you got to try this watermelon, 
you feel different. So the difference is one is true and one is false. But what I'm saying is the same thing. Yeah, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me because when you say something that you don't stand by, it definitely will feel different. <laughs> Because it sounds like this, all of this is so much more for you guys than just entertaining the audience. So if the audience would watch the show and would leave the show with just one takeaway, what do you hope it would be? I think we both agree that it would be hope, actually. We want the audience to really have a sense of hope after watching our show. And I think that's what, why it's so meaningful to us to put on our performances. I think. One way we would put it is like there's always, after a storm, there's always a rainbow. And so we want to have our audience really get to experience that and have hope leaving our theater. And I think it really helps that in the sense that we're not just an entertainment show. We're not really just, we don't, we don't put it on so you can have just laughs or like mm. just have like a momentary piece of like escape. It's more like we really want you to be able to take away these values because I think in Xinyin we have like 20 pieces in our whole program and it's each story I think really has a deep moral or something you can learn from and that really is why I think traditional Chinese culture is so important it's because mm -hmm. each story it really has something that's meaningful it has a moral to the story. The story of Xinyin is actually a story of hope Chinese culture was almost destroyed because of the CCP. But Shen Yun was founded in America, where we were able to revive this traditional Chinese culture and share it with the world. And hope is something that is not a, or a value that is only you know, good for the Chinese people. Hope should be something that everyone all over the world, you know, can, mm -hmm. it's something that everyone can resonate with, this story. And it might just inspire you a little bit in your daily life as well. And along with it is the tradition and virtues of Chinese history and Chinese culture. It's something that's universal. So a really important parts of Chinese culture, such as faith, compassion, and humility, these are all things that we can have a little bit more of in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned uh, in the beginning of this interview, you guys are almost um, out the, off to the airport. You're, you guys are starting your tour. So where can people catch you guys on stage this season? I'm back in Europe. <laughs> My company's in Europe. Yeah. So we have eight companies and we're traveling all over the world, but check out shenyun.com for specific cities. Mm -hmm. So are you going to be in Mexico again? I will be in Mexico this year. But okay, lovely. Always, always. <laughs> if you want to find William Lee, just find him in Mexico. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'll come and wave, from, wave to you from offstage. All right. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Um, it was very insightful. I'm very inspired, I have to say. And if you want to find out more, as William just mentioned, about the performance, feel free to go visit ChenYun.com um, while we now head to a quick break. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. 
Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Maine Secretary of State says she's duty-bound, making Maine the second state to bar former President Trump from the presidential primary. We have reactions to the unilateral action. The Department of Justice threatens to sue Texas over its new law targeting illegal border crossers. The DOJ says the law violates the Constitution. Israel has confirmed a woman thought to be a hostage in Gaza has been killed. It follows the recent announcement of the death of another hostage, the woman's husband. SpaceX successfully launched a secret military vessel into space yesterday. What do we know about its payload so far? We have a long list of New Year's resolutions planned, but now for the hard part, making them stick. Might a stick of gum help? Find out this food scientist's unique strategy. In London, Big Ben celebrates his 100th birthday alongside New Year's celebrations. We look at a timeline of the iconic bell and its clock tower. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Friday. Today is December 29th. In today's top news, Maine Secretary of State Shenna Bellows has removed former President Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. The Democrat issued the decision yesterday, making Maine the second state to disqualify Trump from next year's presidential primary. Bellows' decision to disqualify the GOP frontrunner is based on an interpretation of the 14th Amendment's vague and rarely used insurrection clause. The state's top election official paused her decision pending a potential appeal in state court. Trump's campaign says it will quickly file an objection calling the decision atrocious. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has some reactions to the unilateral action in Maine. Secretary of State Shenna Bellows stated she did not reach the conclusion lightly to bar Trump from the state's primary in her 34-page ruling Thursday. The U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on our government, on the foundations of our government, and that Maine election law and the Constitution required, indeed obligated me to act. Bellows presided over an administrative hearing earlier this month about Trump's eligibility for office. A group of former state lawmakers filed the challenge against Trump. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson weighed in on X, calling Bellows' decision reckless and partisan. He says he's confident the Supreme Court will reverse it. GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy had one request for Americans after Bellows' announcement, posting on X, open your eyes. It's unconstitutional, it's anti-American, it's wrong. Ramaswamy told Fox News he'll withdraw from any GOP primary ballot where competitors are forcibly removed through unconstitutional maneuvers. He's calling for other GOP candidates to follow suit. We then take Maine out of the GOP primary process. That's the logical way to handle this. Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis told Fox, Maine's ruling is, in his words, opening Pandora's box. DeSantis says it defies every notion of constitutional due process, abided by for over 200 years. Maine's procedure for deciding ballot eligibility is different than Michigan's and Colorado's. Eligibility is first considered by the Secretary of State before any court. Bellows cited the Colorado ruling in her decision and its appeal. She wrote a possible reversal by the U.S. Supreme Court did not relieve her of her responsibility to act. She acknowledged that the nation's highest court is likely to eventually weigh in and told CNN she'll follow its ruling. 
Trump's attorneys Wednesday asked Bellows to recuse herself from the issue for public statements after January 6 that, quote, exhibit personal bias in this matter. The letter cited several past posts on Twitter, now X. They say that show she already made the conclusion on alleged insurrection then, before the submission of any evidence or argument in the current matter. Trump's team has vowed to appeal Bellow's decision to Maine's Superior Court. Maine's GOP primary is March 5th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Democratic Congressman Jared Golden put out a statement after the ruling. The representative for Maine's 2nd District says Trump should be allowed on the ballot until actually being found guilty of the crime of insurrection. Golden noted that he had voted to impeach Trump over January 6th, but added the U.S. is a nation of laws. And now for some political analysis surrounding Maine's decision to remove Trump's name from the ballot, we're bringing in Raven Harrison, a political strategist and former congressional candidate. Raven, thank you so much for your time this morning. Good morning. So we've heard what Representative Golden of Maine has said about not it being a good idea to take Trump's name off the ballot, even though he voted to impeach him. Is this evidence that the Secretary of State is overstepping her bounds here? It absolutely is. Uh, she spoke a lot and in great detail about her moral obligation. She didn't speak about what the Constitution actually says. So you cannot remove this man under the 14th Amendment, citing insurrection. He has not been convicted of any such crime. It is also a good time to do a, a quick history lesson that when the 14th Amendment was introduced, only 94 percent of Republicans voted for it, but zero Democrats. So the fact that they are obsessed with the 14th Amendment now is very telling. Right, and I'll just point out here that Bellows had made her decision after a bipartisan group of former lawmakers had challenged Trump's position on the ballot here. Now, we can imagine what Trump supporters are going to think about this decision here in Maine, but what do you have to say to people who are voters that don't support Trump? I would say the voters are, this is about your freedom to decide who you want to be governed by. And no politician and no partisan witch hunt is going to take that from you. Both my parents are Air Force veterans, so is my husband. They fought for the freedom of you to choose. And these political persecutions are not choice. They are tantamount to tyranny. We have got to follow the Constitution as it was written. He has not had due process. He has not been convicted of a crime. So trying to remove him from the ballot under this guise is premature and unconstitutional. So a little history here on Bellows. She is a former executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, and Trump's lawyers had asked that she recuse herself from this whole decision-making process. Do you think that this is something that is going to be more consequential, given that Maine actually used that split in how it divvies up the electoral votes, whereas in Colorado it's winner-take-all? Well, I do think that there is some element to that, that there's a difference in how they do it in terms of them divvying out the electoral votes. But again, at the end of the day, Maine has four electoral votes to give for president. And there's been now posturing and rumors and, and Republicans talking about removing Biden from the ballot in Texas, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Florida if they continue on this course. So they can win without Maine. They can't win without Texas, Florida, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. So I think this is a road we should not start down. We should not be turning our political systems into this kind of rhetoric. Right. I see what you mean, that the tit for tat is not the correct direction to take here. Raven Harrison, political strategist and former congressional candidate, thank you for weighing in on this. Thank you so much. 
The Department of Justice is threatening to sue Texas Governor Greg Abbott again, this time over a new Texas law that grants local law enforcement the authority to arrest illegal immigrants. The DOJ says the law violates the U.S. Constitution. It's warning Abbott to back down from enforcing it. The measure, known as Senate Bill 4, is set to take effect in March. Abbott reacted by accusing the Biden administration of, quote, destroying America. Abbott on X said not only does the administration fail to enforce current U.S. immigration laws, it now wants to stop Texas from enforcing laws against illegal immigration. And now we have some news out of Israel, where an American-Canadian-Israeli woman thought to be held hostage in Gaza was pronounced dead yesterday. Judith Weinstein and her husband Gad Hagai were taking an early morning walk on October 7th near Kibbutz Niraz. That's when Hamas terrorists burst across the border into Israel. The two were thought to be among the hostages still held in captivity in Gaza, but the kibbutz announced last week that Haggai was killed on October 7th and his body was taken to Gaza. News emerged yesterday that Weinstein was also killed on October 7th and her body is also being held in Gaza. It was not immediately clear how Israeli authorities determined their deaths. According to the kibbutz, the couple are survived by two sons, two daughters and seven grandchildren. Shelling along the Lebanon-Israel border continued throughout the day yesterday. This is Lebanese officials spent the day in meetings with French and British counterparts about the growing conflict between Hezbollah and Israel. The Iran-backed terrorist group claimed it carried out simultaneous attacks yesterday, targeting multiple locations across northern Israel. Here's an IDF spokesman on Israel's plans to take further action against the terrorist group. They literally could create an entire terror umbrella over the state of Israel. They've been backed and trained by Iran for decades, and they are, a, they are a serious terror army. When push comes to shove, if the diplomatic community cannot take care of this, we will use whatever weapons and means at our disposal to take them out. Up next, the U.S. military and SpaceX teamed up for a successful launch yesterday. But what could the secret military payload be? We have more on the mystery coming up. And eat less, exercise more, nix the soda, and switch to unsweetened tea. Great ideas for New Year's resolutions on slimming down, but how do you beef up your commitment? Catch a food scientist's idea. And Big Ben turns 100. We take a look at the iconic Bell's timeline over the years. That story after this short break. Welcome back. SpaceX's Falcon Heavy rocket returned to the skies yesterday evening. It launched a mysterious spacecraft for the U.S. military that will carry out cutting-edge research. The rocket lifted off from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, carrying the military's X-37B space plane, which is unmanned and operates autonomously. The rocket's boosters returned to Earth and touched down safely. It's unclear exactly where the space plane is going. The launch came after more than two weeks of delays. During that time, China sent its own secretive spacecraft into orbit. Some in the industry speculate the military payload mirrors the X-37B in form and function. 
Over the years, the Pentagon has been tight-lipped regarding information about the robotic test vehicle. Details have remained largely classified. And New Year's Eve is rapidly approaching. Many use the New Year's holiday to make resolutions or ponder lessons they've garnered throughout the year. We asked people across America about their resolutions and what the year taught them. Let's take a look. As another year comes to an end, people turn their thoughts to the upcoming year. Making a New Year's resolution is a time-honored tradition for many. I think that we're just trying to be smarter with our money this year so that we can buy a house at the end of the year. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, to kind of just exercise more, um, to focus more on mental health and like overall health um, and just to have a you know great year and accomplish many things. To go explore and I guess really venture outside my comfort zone. That's, that's what I'm trying to do this coming year. And wish the world peace. We got a lot going on in the world. It is so much segregation, so much division. Just lose weight and get back in shape from all the candy. <laughs> 2023 was a memorable year. What were some lessons people took away from the year's events? You know, family is the most important thing. And uh, no matter how hard things get, just keep on, keep on fighting through it. Life is hard. Life is really hard. There's ups and downs, but to never give up. I have to put in the effort to, for myself to do anything and you know everything's on me just everybody be happy spend time with your family enjoy um that quality time because it may not be guaranteed just uh, <laughs> love on your family that's the most important yeah. thing the new year's holiday is more than just a transition from one year to the next it offers an opportunity to reflect on the past look for ways to improve and to plan for the future yeah, I think I'd say mine would be just to eat healthier next year. Next year, it's crazy because when I say that, it's basically the next show that we have will be next year. Yeah, well, yeah. and you know what they say about these New Year's resolutions, you should always make a specific goal. So not like things like being more healthy in the new year. Yeah, like yeah. To work okay, out. I should rethink that. Like for me, like trying to work out at least three times a week. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah. And you can actually keep track of what it, yeah, that's yeah, a good measurable. idea. And you know, I spoke to a doctor, Taylor Wallace, he's a food scientist at George Washington University, to find out how to make and keep New Year's resolutions for your health. Let's check it out. Well, for me, it's all about small changes, right? When we try to completely overhaul someone's diet, uh, they usually fail within at least a couple of weeks, especially when it comes to this time of year with New Year's resolutions. So for me, it's small changes. Um, things like uh, we're currently conducting a study on chewing gum where we find that gum chewers tend to consume less soda, less sugary foods. Um, so you can offset some of those unhealthy habits uh, with something that uh, is healthy for dental hygiene. Uh, another example is switch out those sugary beverages with unsweet tea. Uh, that's something that people universally like. Uh, it's a small change that you can implement. And we know that the antioxidants in uh, unsweet tea are very heart healthy. Uh, for those of us who are concerned about hypertension or our blood cholesterol levels. And Dr. Wallace, I hear that chewing gum will actually stimulate the digestive process, make you hungrier, maybe it helps you lose weight? 
Well, so there's not a lot of research uh, in this area to be confirmatory. Um, however, like I said, we do know that people who chew gum tend to have what we call a better diet quality. So they tend to consume more healthier foods and they tend to refrain from uh, more unhealthy snacks, particularly sugar-sweetened beverages like soda. Uh, when it comes to stimulating uh, you know, your taste buds that extend all the way down into your stomach, that's a really new emerging area of research that's exciting, but I'm not sure we're ready to make recommendations on that just yet. Really interesting, yeah, and chewing gum would be a simple way to start making some of these small changes, cutting out more of those sugary drinks and pops, that's a good idea too. How do people stick to their resolutions? Do you have any tips? Well, for me, it's always make resolutions that are sustainable, right? People don't like when you tell them what not to eat, but they do fairly well when you tell them what to eat. So have one or two cups of unsweet tea, chew a stick of uh, unsweet gum twice a day. People resonate with that and it's practical and it's implementable uh, in their everyday lifestyles. That is great. And if people have a hard time keeping their resolutions, they're not alone because studies show that about 80% of those are broken within the first year and 20% are broken within the first week of January. So it could be tough, but tell us a little bit how you stay on track. Well, again, it's about keeping yourself accountable, one. It's about making small changes that are implementable and that are practical for your lifestyle. And two, uh, one of the things that studies do show is that healthy people tend to um, coalesce with other healthy people, right? So if your friends are going out to dinner um, and they're sharing an entree, uh, you're likely to do the same thing. If your friends are going to the gym, you're likely uh, to exhibit those same healthy habits. So surrounding people that, surrounding yourself with people that are health conscious um, is a good step in the right direction. That's a good point, and a study by YouGov shows that about half the people actually make New Year's resolutions to lose some weight. So, Dr. Taylor Wallace, food scientist at George Washington University, thank you so much. Thank you. It's amazing that a little simple thing like chewing gum can actually help you achieve those goals. Yeah, that's right. I mean, also, it's crazy, those stats that you've mentioned, 20% of, of those uh, New Year's resolutions are broken within the first week. Wow. Yeah, it makes me rethink that. Yeah, I think I think he gave me some some good inspiration. Unfortunately, I was not able to catch everything that he said here in the studio, but it seems like just those uh, non-sugary, you know, not sweetened tea or uh, or chewing some gum, gum can help me go a long way. Yeah, and those stats, maybe it's uh, evidence that people should make attainable goals. Mm. You know, I've heard actually also somebody, um, I think it was from last year, somebody saying that um, maybe you can also tell your friends about it, tell your family about it, and then it feels like that you're more committed to that goal, and maybe they even help you to be held accountable. Yeah, the buddy system. That. Yeah. That's good. Well, you know, I am guilty of eating those refined sugars and make my own ice cream. So oh. you pour that in there. Maybe I could use maple syrup instead. Oh, yeah, that's right. But I'm sure you can allow yourself that. I know that you're a very healthy eater. <laughs> All right, we're heading to London, where the new year also coincides with another special anniversary. The famous Big Ben is ringing out chimes for the new year as it celebrates its 100th anniversary. The clock tower on the Houses of Parliament in London has been at the center of events marking the start and end of wars and other momentous occasions, of course. Here's Entity's Costa Maness to give us a timeline of the events. 
As the UK welcomes the arrival of 2024, Big Ben and four other bells in Elizabeth Tower will ring out the start of the new year. Contrary to common belief, it is not the tower going by the name of Big Ben, but rather its largest bell in Elizabeth Tower. It was part of the rebuilding of the Palace of Westminster, which was badly damaged in a fire in 1834, until its completion in 1859. It was a huge undertaking. The entire palace had to be based on a vast lump of concrete, which we call the Barry Raft, which is still there, two meters thick at least, more like five under the two towers, to stabilize it on the small gravel island, which is what Westminster really is, beside a, a strong and, and at the time largely untamed river. In 1941, the tower was damaged during a Nazi bombing raid. But patriotic newsreels proclaimed at the time, the Houses of Parliament were one of the casualties of London's 10th of May Blitz, but Big Ben refused to stop work for a second, even if his hands did shake a bit. The tower was closed for its most recent refurbishment from 2017 to 2022. They're uh, strongly outlined, you'll see now, in a rather handsome royal blue colour. But during the war, I think for the first time, the Second World War, they were painted black. And it's only recently, in the most recent renovation, they've come back to their blue colour. Now Big Ben is again set to take centre stage, as thousands of tourists are expected to flock into the British capital for New Year's celebrations. So New Year is probably one of the, the biggest celebratory points in our calendar of the year. It's one of the biggest fireworks celebrations in the world. Um, and all of this area here is where you can come and watch the fireworks. And obviously Big Ben plays a big part of that because all of the boings that go down until midnight. According to London and Partners, over 15 million people from around the world visited London this year, exceeding pre-pandemic levels from 2019. Cost MNS, NTD News. And for our last story of the year, police in Bartlett, Tennessee, received an interesting call Christmas morning regarding a beaver on the loose inside a hospital. Officers arrived to help and made sure the beaver made it home safe. Take a look. Um, wow, is it inside the... It's inside the hospital in the lobby. Oh my God, that's so weird. <laughs> Let me see what I can do. I'll call the lieutenant. Oh, maybe they can wrangle it and get it outside. I don't know, but I'll, I'll see if I can get you some help. But, um, okay, thank you. Sorry. Hey, it's Allison. St. Francis just called. There is a beaver loose in the ER lobby. Can, can you not open the pilot, you know, just open the door and just kind of shush him out the door? I don't know. It was the, um, the operator that called and said that one of the nurses called and told him to call us. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get somebody to take a look. <laughs> No one was injured, including the beaver, after wheeling the animal out in a trash container. Wow, yeah, so it would be one thing to come home and see beaver chew marks in your Christmas tree. Yeah, the poor guy just wanted to maybe find some material to build his home. 
<laughs> but in the ER, that point of view camera really got me. That was hilarious. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're wrapping up our show now here this week and this year, but we'll keep you updated today with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We're wishing you all a happy new year. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. Happy New Year. I'm Kevin Hogan.